Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we're continuing our series this morning through the Gospel of Mark, and as you can tell from our passage, we're at the point in the story where Jesus has reached his destination, the city of Jerusalem. You'll remember that he has been telling us for several chapters that this is where he intends to go so that he can give his life as a ransom for many. And while our passage here at the end is, at, is found at the end of chapter 11, it's actually at the beginning of a series of conflicts that we will see between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. Conflicts that are going to start right here, and they're going to eventually culminate in Jesus' crucifixion. Now, conflicts in Jesus' life is nothing new in the Gospel of Mark. And in fact, if I were to take us through the entire Gospel of Mark, which I'm not going to do, but what you would find if we were to do that is that in almost every single chapter, there is an example of a conflict between Jesus and some kind of religious or political figure. And what's interesting is that up until this point, those confrontations between Jesus and figures have been primarily described as with the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, when you hear the word scribe, I want you to think of a lawyer, right? This is somebody who is an expert in the law of God, but who doesn't necessarily hold any power or authority. And when you hear the word Pharisee, right, we think of the Pharisees usually as like the primary villains in the gospel narratives, but the Pharisees were really just a group in Israel that held to very specific views of God's law, and they sought, kind of like a lobbying group, to infiltrate and to influence the actual leadership in Israel. And so while they were highly influential among the people and among the leadership of Israel, the Pharisees didn't necessarily hold official power and authority. And what's interesting is as we come to our passage this morning, what we are actually seeing is something very different. Because what we see here in verse 27 is not that this confrontation that we see between Jesus and these people are with the scribes or the Pharisees, but Mark says that the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders have come to Jesus. And the reason that Mark is grouping all these people together is to communicate to us that it's not just some random lawyer, and it's not just some lobbying group that Jesus is interacting with. 
Jesus is being confronted here by the actual leadership of Israel that is known as the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was the highest governing body in Jerusalem. It was made up of 71 representatives of the people, and they presided over the highest and most controversial cases in Israel. And what's interesting is that while this isn't the first time that if you go through the Gospel of Mark that the Sanhedrin takes an interest in the ministry of Jesus, in this passage it is the first time that these people have approached Jesus in such a public and a powerful way. Now let's just think for a second. Why? Why would the Sanhedrin wait until now to confront Jesus? Now, if you have a Bible, I want you to look back at verse 18 of chapter 11, because this is where our answer is found. Because you see in verse 11 of chapter, or sorry, verse 18 of chapter 11, what we see is that after Jesus had prophetically entered Jerusalem to cheering crowds and then violently cleansed the temple, right, fulfilling Zechariah 9 and Malachi 3, it says that the chief priests... And the scribes heard about it, and that now they were seeking a way to destroy Jesus because they feared him, because all of the crowd was astonished at Jesus' teaching. I want you to think about that for just a second. The reason that the Sanhedrin felt compelled to confront Jesus now was because he had finally made his way into their domain. And he had brought with him a conflict that they could no longer avoid and no longer ignore. And as we'll see as we dive into the passage this morning, as they came to confront Jesus, what they're going to find and what we will find is that in fact it is Jesus who had come to confront them. And if we're honest, the presence of Jesus in our lives and even in our world makes us just as uncomfortable as it did the Sanhedrin. And the reason is exactly the same. Because all of us, you and I, we tend to resist those that we believe are interfering with our domain. The places that we feel we have control and authority. No one likes being told how to do their job. Nobody likes being told how to raise their kids. And nobody likes being told how to live their lives, especially when it comes to spiritual matters. And that just like the Sanhedrin, what we're going to find this morning is that when Jesus comes to us, who he claims to be and what he has claimed to do is impossible to avoid and impossible to ignore. That when we come to confront Jesus thinking that he is on our turf, what we find is that Jesus has come to confront us about his turf. And so that is where we're headed this morning as we go to the passage. But before we dive in, would you please pray with me as we go to the Lord? Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together as your people this morning and for bringing us your word Would you, by your Holy Spirit, illumine our hearts to understand it, apply it to our lives so that we would look like Christ in the world and that we would have fellowship with you. We thank you for the authority of Jesus and what that means for our world and what it means for our lives. 
Help us now as we confront hard things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus has come, and he has come primarily to confront us with his authority. I want you to notice back in our passage for this morning, the repetition of the word authority, right? This says, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority? And in even Jesus' response, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. But what is authority? Well, I think it's important to understand that the, the Greek word here that's translated authority, it literally means freedom. And more specifically, it means the freedom to choose. Authority in our world and in our lives is the right and the ability to determine what happens in a particular aspect of life. And we all know how this works, right? Teachers, you have authority in your classrooms. Business owners, you have authority in your businesses. Parents, you have authority in your families and individuals. All of us, we have authority over ourselves. And this is why laws against trespassing and laws against burglary and assault make sense to us, right? Because to trespass, to steal, to assault somebody is to do violence to their authority in a specific area of their lives. We all know intuitively that authority is central to how God has made the world. And this, aside, is why the phrase kingdom of God is so important in the Bible. And it's why the religious leaders come to Jesus so boldly and say, by what authority are you doing these things? And what's fascinating is that in the way Jesus responds he is turning their question back on themselves and showing that he actually does have the right and the ability to exercise all authority in heaven and on earth. I want you to look here at verse 30. I want you to notice in verse 30 how Jesus presents authority to us and to the Sanhedrin. Notice how he says, there is an authority that is from heaven and there's an authority that is from men. Now, it's important for us to remember in the first century that people didn't primarily think about authority in the categories of spheres, right? That there's a jurisdiction over here and a jurisdiction over here. They primarily thought about authority in terms of hierarchy. And what the implication is here is that heavenly authority is higher and greater than any earthly authority. And we hear this perspective echoed in the book of Acts, right? You'll remember when the same Sanhedrin grab the apostles who are preaching in the temple, they say to them, stop preaching in Jesus's name. And it says in Acts chapter four, that Peter and John said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you should be the judge of that. Heavenly authority is greater than any earthly authority. And this is why Jesus hitches his ministry to John the Baptist in how he is responding, right? Because if you go back to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, what you're going to see is that God himself is the one who commissioned John the Baptist. In the beginning of Mark, it says, As it was written in the prophet Isaiah, 
Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And then as John the Baptist's ministry continued, he eventually started to say, there is one who comes after me who is mightier than I. So how do we understand this? What is Jesus getting at, right? Well, if John had the right to baptize and that that authority came from heaven, then the right of Jesus to exercise his authority, whether in Jerusalem or in the temple or in our lives, is greater. And it's greater even than the Sanhedrin. But I don't want to stop here because I think the scriptures paint an even bigger picture of how we need to think about the authority of Jesus. I want you to listen to how the Apostle Paul describes the expansive scope of Jesus' authority in this world. In Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. This is the most important part. That in everything, Christ might be preeminent. That is a long and an expansive way of just saying what Jesus said in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Really think about that. Jesus has the authority to create anything he wants. Jesus has the authority to sustain anything he wants. He has the authority to command and to judge, to forgive and to redeem. He has the authority to restore all things. The word of God is unapologetically clear that Jesus has every right to all authority in our lives. But what's great about the Gospel of Mark is that not only does Jesus here and the scriptures as a whole prove that Jesus has the right to all authority, it also proves that he has the ability to all authority to show that, right? Because this is not the first time entering Jerusalem, cleansing the temple. It's not the first time that Jesus has shown that he has the ability to enact that authority, right? You guys will remember if we just go back to chapter one of the gospel, when Jesus and his disciples came to Capernaum, they went into a synagogue and they started teaching. And the people's response to Jesus's teaching was literally, amazement, because it says that he taught them as one who had authority, not as one of their scribes. And when, an un, when, a, when a man possessed by a demon, by an unclean spirit, entered the synagogue and started making a ruckus, and Jesus cast that demon out with a word, the people's response was, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And if it weren't enough that we have all these examples, again, if we just leaf through the entire book of Mark, 
you're going to find example after example after example of Jesus having the ability to exercise his heavenly authority. Remember, he's casting out demons. He's calming storms. He's healing the sick. He is raising the dead. And all of this is veiled in Jesus' simple question to the Sanhedrin. And these are the facts that they are being confronted with. But what you notice here in the passage is that while the facts are clear to them, they are refusing to acknowledge it and to accept it. But why? Why would the most highly educated, the most influential, and the most powerful people in Israel be unwilling to answer Jesus' simple question? And I would argue that it's not because they lacked evidence or that they lacked intellectual reasons. It was because of their hearts. This is why, as we keep looking at this passage, that Jesus has not only come to confront us with his authority, he has come to confront us with the reality of our own hearts. I want you to notice in verses 31 and 32 how Mark slows down to describe how the Sanhedrin is thinking about responding to Jesus' question. And you can almost like sense how this is happening, right? A crowd of men come marching confidently into the temple, right? They interrupt Jesus right in the middle of his teaching, and then they publicly question him, and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? Knowing full well that the reason that they came to the temple in the first place was to shut it down. Their goal was to destroy Jesus and remove him from their domain, And what's hilarious about this is that Mark says that when Jesus turned the question on them, this bold and confident crowd became flustered and confused. Mark just says, they boldly asked the question and then they turned to discuss it with one another. What did they have to discuss? They already knew why they were there. What was it about Jesus' question that was stopping them in their tracks? And I think that the reason that they were so flustered is because what Jesus was doing with his question was confronting them in public, nevertheless, with the duplicity and the idolatry of their own hearts. One of my favorite words in the exchange that we see here in Mark is the word they discussed. You see it in verse 31. Now, this word, it seems pretty straightforward, but what's great about this word is that commentators have noticed that the way in which this word is being used in the Greek is that it's carrying with it the idea of, check this out, ideological confusion. That's an interesting phrase. It literally means, right, that the Sanhedrin was experiencing not intellectual confusion, but moral confusion. It wasn't an issue in their head. It was an issue in their heart. You see, because instead of simply dealing with the simple truth and evidence that was before them, their divided hearts were finding ways to hedge their bets, right? Hedge their bets with God. Hedge their bets with the crowd. Hedge their bets with Jesus, 
They're not even interested in the evidence that Jesus is putting forth. They just want to look like they have power and control in their lives. And I want you to notice, if you look at their answer, their focus is entirely on the optics of the situation and completely dismissive of the truth. This kind of duplicity is warned about elsewhere in Scripture, and it's most notably talked about in James chapter 1. Here's what James says in in chapter 1 of his book. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let that person ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord, because that person is a double-minded person. They are unstable in all of their ways. Now, before you hear what I'm not saying, right, James is not saying that if you have questions about your faith, or if you have doubts about the claims of Jesus, that you shouldn't be exploring those, or that you are somehow doomed, Jesus welcomes those who are doubting, and he welcomes those who are curious. What James is saying here is that the double-minded man is the one whose loyalty and allegiances in their lives are not really with the Lord, but only with themselves. James is just confirming what Jesus is showing us here, right? Jesus has come to confront us with the fact that we usually have divided hearts. Because the truth is, we are unwilling to accept Jesus' authority in any part of our lives, not because we're confused in our head, but because of an idolatry in our hearts. Look at verses 31 and 32. Especially in verse 32, it shows us the idolatry of the Sanhedrin. Mark simply says that these men were afraid of the people. They were more concerned about keeping their influence and their power in Jerusalem intact than they were about honestly receiving Jesus' bold but truthful claims about himself. And I don't want you to miss this. Because if the opinion of the people in Jerusalem had been different, let's say that the people didn't actually receive the baptism of John as coming from heaven, that they didn't actually believe that John the Baptist was really a prophet. If the people didn't believe that, I want you to notice that the Sanhedrin wouldn't have had any problem answering Jesus' question, right? They would have said to Jesus without a single you know, hint of confusion, John the Baptist was a false prophet, and his authority was a sham. And then without question, they would have told the creator of the universe, the Lord himself, to get out of the temple and to stay in his lane. And what's interesting is that this is exactly what will happen. Because eventually, by Thursday, The Sanhedrin is going to sway the opinion of the people. And instead of crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that same crowd is going to cry, crucify Jesus of Nazareth. And what is amazing about this 
is that it's even here, through Jesus' death, that he demonstrates the scope and power of his authority. Because I want you to remember, in John chapter 10, before Jesus is crucified, he says this to his disciples. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, because this is the charge that I have received from the Father in heaven. Nobody takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus' death, giving his life as a ransom for many, was not an accident. It was a demonstration of Jesus' expansive authority in our lives and in our world. That the bodily resurrection of Jesus was a bold proclamation that not even death could hold Jesus down with its authority. As it says elsewhere in the scriptures, the keys of death and Hades have been given to the Son. It's a bold claim. Notice here that because the Sanhedrin feared the people more than they feared God himself, they turned to Jesus and they told him a bold face and yet really pathetic lie. Look in verse 33. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus answered them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus is not being silly. He's being piercing. Because Jesus is not really interested in playing our games about who's really in control. He is only really interested in confronting us with the truth, the truth about his authority, the truth about our hearts, and the truth about his grace. And so these men, these bold representatives, right, they slink away from Jesus. And they're further embittered because what Jesus has done in this exchange is that he has shown that he is further developing the fact that he belongs in their domain. He belongs exactly where he has put himself in their lives. And that is where our passage ends. Kind of a strange place to stop. There's actually going to be a little bit more to the passage that we see next week. But what do we do with this? How does this actually apply to our lives? Because it's not just interesting information about Jesus in the Sanhedrin. So what do we do with this? Well, applying this to our lives, I think, begins by recognizing each and every one of us that Jesus is still coming to us today. He's not absent from your world. He's not absent from your life. He is very much alive and very much involved in what is going on. But instead of coming to you and to I in the flesh, what Jesus is doing now, seated at the right hand of the Father, is that he is coming through the word of God and by his Holy Spirit. Lest you forget, right, that in Hebrews chapter 4 it says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, 
of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Through the word of God, being preached, being read, being meditated on, weekly, daily, in community, by yourself, through the word of God and by the Spirit, Jesus is confronting us with his authority in our lives. And he's confronting us with the truth about our own hearts. And each time we open the word, what we hear is the voice of God calling us to give up our desires for power and control in our lives, the power and control that we want in our families, the power and the control that we want in our careers or our politics, the power and control that we want in our schedules or our finances, our hobbies, our pleasures, even our trials. We have to give up the desire for control in every aspect of our lives, that we need to turn from our idolatry and our duplicity so that we can actually hear what Jesus is saying, so that we can actually see and accept the glorious and gracious authority that he has brought. This authority, again, is most powerfully displayed in the cross and the resurrection. And yet, one question still remains. I love how Jesus answers the Sanhedrin Because they come to him and they give him two questions. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? And Jesus says, I will ask you one question. And this is the question we all need to wrestle with. How are you going to respond to Jesus' authority in your life? Because the Sanhedrin shows us that there's really only two ways to respond. You can either rebel against his authority. You can do it overtly, or you can do it covertly. Try to pretend. But when you do that, you are rejecting his mercy. Let's just be honest about that. When we reject the authority of the Son, we are rejecting his mercy. The other option, you can submit. You can submit to his gracious and glorious authority. And when you do that, in every aspect of your life, you will find time and time again more and more of his goodness and grace. Because here's what the Sanhedrin show us in this passage. You can rebel against Jesus' authority or you can submit to it, but the only thing that you can't do with Jesus and his authority is ignore it. We see how silly the Sanhedrin looks as they try to ignore the evidence of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. May our lives not be filled with such foolishness, but by the Spirit may we submit to Jesus' authority. May we confess our sin and receive his grace. And may, by God's grace, we experience Jesus' authority fully, when he returns to restore all things and that each and every one of us through God's grace enter his kingdom 
forever. That's why Jesus has come, to confront you. How are you going to respond? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are high and lifted up. You have been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and you have been seated at the right hand of the Father. And Lord, we are so thankful that the way in which you chose to use your authority was to show your enemies grace and compassion, and that even now, in your authority, you intercede on our behalf. We are an idolatrous and duplicitous people. Forgive us of our divided hearts and show us where in our lives we are rejecting your authority and turn our hearts to submit to you and to receive the grace that you have for us. Thank you for being with us this morning by your word. May it always be our companion throughout our entire lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.